not part of the culture here. I just don't think we're going to get very good shit. Yeah. Man, if you're making, like, a big seafood gumbo, like, you don't really want to pay restaurant prices. No. Like, if you're loading it up with shrimp and crab, you're like, yeah. oh, cool, I got a $30 bowl of gumbo at right. this restaurant. It's like, I could pay that for, like, a pot right. of gumbo. Exactly. Yeah. All right, welcome to the Eat, Drink, Listen podcast, uh, where two somewhat knowledgeable guys explore our favorite whiskey, food, and music, and hopefully learn a few things along the way. My name is Ian. I'm Scott. And today, for the second time, we are talking about gumbo. We became official podcasters uh, a couple hours ago when we recorded our first Lost podcast. Uh, The audio quality was trash, and so we are talking about gumbo, but trust me, it's no less fresh the second time. (laughs) Okay, I hope not. So... Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history and the cultural background of gumbo and then get into how to make the, or at least the closest approximation you can at home to, uh, what the chefs in new Orleans are putting out at, uh, commander's palace or wherever you're going to go to. So, uh, so I'll turn it over to Scott for a little bit of the historic and cultural background on gumbo. Yeah. So, uh, gumbo kind of symbolic of the culture and the people in uh, New Orleans and Louisiana, moreover. Um, And there's a lot in that word gumbo, just as we spoke about with curry a couple weeks ago um, in India. So Louisiana, kind of a melting pot, it still is, and it especially was a few hundred years ago. It's one of the biggest port cities, oh, sorry, okay, New Orleans in Louisiana, uh, one of the biggest port cities in uh, the United States. You know, you're at the, uh, the tail end there of the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico. You got a lot of uh, things being shipped in and out of there. Uh, That's where all the weed was coming from, right? In like the early 1900s. (laughs) That's what uh, I just remember from some of those like documentaries about uh, early drug prohibition. It's just these like bales of old like uh, marijuana, like being brought off the docks in New Orleans. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think that was a big part of, you know, like the uh, cultural association with kind of like black culture and, and marijuana and one of the reasons it was uh prohibited but anyway yes oh, lots okay. lots of stuff coming through the ports right. there including some contraband yeah right um and there always is and probably always will be um so you've got three countries at that time as well kind of claiming on louisiana for themselves you've got britain spain and france And so we're going to kind of go back to uh, the beginning here. Um, So for about 1,800 years, uh, you know, the Choctaw uh, Native American tribe uh, was the the most prominent tribe in in Louisiana. And then uh, Hernando de Soto comes in and uh, discovers Louisiana. Um, Befriends. Befriends. Louisiana, I think, is the way the conquistadors did it. Right. Shows them the truth. Um, And so that's the early 16th century. And uh, so shortly thereafter, we have, um, you know, the French discovering it. La Salle uh, comes in. 
And um, then a big part of Louisiana today and then comes from this uh, kind of cultural divergence and, and between Creole and Cajun. What do those what are those words? What do they even mean? Um, Ian, where does the word Cajun come from? What does that mean? Well, good thing you asked because I just found this out. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I I didn't realize that um, Cajun I'd, – I'd heard of this group called the Acadians before, but I didn't really know what they were. Um, and so in reading about gumbo uh, – you start to read about the Acadians and their influence on gumbo. Um, I think they said they made a lot of stews. And so that was maybe their kind of contribution, but they were a group of uh, French people who had settled in kind of what's now like Nova Scotia, like the maritime provinces of Canada. And then as Scott alluded to, when these land disputes started happening, uh, over kind of the new world between the French and the British, the British wanted that area of land for themselves and so uh, evicted or removed something like 15,000 Acadians and not without some form, a lot of resistance. There was right. a lot of bloodshed and it's kind of a form of genocide. Actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, so they weren't relocated directly to Louisiana. A lot of them were sent uh, either to back to France or to Britain or to different areas. But then um, the Spanish and French were looking for colonists, people to live and settle in that area uh, around New Orleans and in Louisiana. And so the Acadians, a few thousand of them, migrated again over to the new world if we're a little further south this time. And I imagine the climate was a bit of a shock after being in Nova Scotia, but yeah, uh, I uh, found out that it was kind of like if we were just sent down to uh, the middle of the Amazon type of an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's kind of this quaint, Oh, so Acadian and you say that enough times and a Cajun and it, and it becomes Cajun. Right. Uh, and so it sounds quaint, but you're right. It's it's funny when you start looking at some of these. I guess it's not funny, but once you start looking at some of these historic events under a microscope, just how tragic and savage the um, behavior was on the part of these colonizing nations. And and so, yeah, the word Cajun uh, now has this association with that area. But you're right, like the... Um, historical remnants there are, are pretty tragic and, and uh, pretty painful. So, yeah. So the Cajuns uh, again come from, or that term, those people uh, are French descendants of France. And um, now Creole is different. And again, a lot of the time, people outside of Louisiana kind of use those in a synonymous fashion, Cajun and Creole. Mm-hmm. Um, but Creole uh, actually means uh, more folks of mixed races. 
Now, um, it was, you know, in the early 18th century when large numbers of enslaved Africans were brought to Louisiana, actually in 1719. And by 1721, more than half of the residents of New Orleans were African. So you've got this, uh, this influx of enslaved Africans coming in. You've got all of these uh, Native Americans who are still there, and then you've got all of these uh, Europeans who are there. And obviously, um, you know, a, a lot of these folks, just as we've seen with, um, you know, Neanderthals and, and Homo sapiens that they uh, crossbred, you know, people in the same area will have sex. So, um, <laughs> and they'll have food sex. Too. Yes, and so both of those things occurred, and so Cajun uh, again. We're looking at French Acadians and Creole. We're looking at uh, folks who have um, some African ancestry, uh, perhaps some Native American, and as as well as some European ancestry. So we've got all of these different um, cultural influences coming together in New Orleans and Louisiana, and all of those things together uh, end up kind of becoming the culture and the and gumbo being a huge part of that. Um, the The word gumbo is thought to derive from. Um, an African word, uh, ki ungumbo, or kai ungumbo. And in general, it just means uh, soup and rice dish. Um, yeah, it kind of felt like it was a little bit of um, like stone soup or a little bit of like whatever you have on hand, throw in the pot. Right. And because of all these different influences in the area, that's sort of like what people could get at the market. Um because, yeah, I, I found that so interesting. And in gumbo, you can really draw back or, you know, draw out all these ingredients and tie them to something. I saw they have like a Haitian kind of influence with like right. hot peppers. You have these like Canary Islanders from Spain who are add things like cayenne. You have like the German influence with the andouille and the sausage. Um, and so I thought that was really fascinating how, you know, like I mentioned with the Acadians and the stew, you have like the French kind of bouillabaisse influence with a seafood based kind of stew. And then, uh, like you alluded to, you have like the African influence with things like okra. The okra. Yeah. 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 And so then what makes gumbo gumbo if it's just like this stone soup type thing that Ian was talking about? Well... The first thing that comes to mind is what, Ian? That would be the thing I always screw up, which is the roux. The roux, right, the roux. And so it's a different kind of roux with gumbo. It's a, a, a dark roux. So there's there's a couple things that are I believe are quintessential gumbo. One is the dark roux, and the other is andouille sausage, which is also kind of um, native to Louisiana itself. Uh, kind of a spice sausage. And again, that, that sausage-making uh, background does come from Germans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so how do you make that roux to make a good gumbo? Well, what is roux? Roux, in general, is just 
fat with flour um, to use to, as a thickening agent for soups, for sauces. Um, it's usually pretty close to equal parts, flour and fat. And the classic French ways to do this would be like a butter or a duck fat or lardon, which is bacon fat, pork fat. Yeah, roux is one of those things that feels a little bit um, like challenging next degree of difficulty when you're getting into cooking because it is, you know, it's the thing where if you don't want to add a cream of mushroom soup, you're going to need to make a roux to thicken it up. Right. But trust me as a very unaccomplished home cook, you can do a roux. No, you can do you a can roux. do a roux. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and it's much better. Don't, don't add cream of mushrooms. Don't, regardless of what your mom or grandma says. Yeah, it's, it's nostalgic, but it's, uh, there's better things out so there. So salty, so gross. Yeah. Um, I guess the one thing I'd be all right is like green bean casserole, maybe. I, like, I mean, that's all. That's, yeah. I have a hard time making, eating a fancier version of the green bean right. casserole. Yeah. It's, it's solid the way it is. You got to put those French's onions. You got to do, do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it just wouldn't be Thanksgiving without it. Uh, so we've got the andouille. Uh, bacon is also another one. So I think one of the keys is to um, render down your bacon and your andouille, kind of brown those up on a medium to medium low heat for a while so you can really render out that fat, then remove your meat, and then add your um, equal part flour to your oil. So if you've got about a cup of, uh, it doesn't have to be totally exact, but if you have about a cup of oil or fat left over, add about a cup of flour. And then you're going to want to make sure you've got a whisk and you don't have anything else to do for a while because on a medium low to low heat, you're going to want to constantly whisk that roux for about 25 to 30 minutes, which is different from regular roux. Um, which you would cook for maybe three to five minutes just to cook out the flavor of the flour. If um, Ian said a couple of weeks ago we were talking about curry, um, the blooming of the spices, it's so that the spices don't taste too harsh and, and, and aggressive. And the same thing with roux. You don't want to have a soup that tastes like flour. Um, yeah, the flour gets this nice kind of nuttiness mm -hmm, as exactly. it uh, browns and just slightly caramelizes. And and yeah, so once you start to smell that, for most things that I cook with a roux, that's kind of the point when I know it's ready. But with your gumbo, you want to keep going. Right. And it can be um, kind of a panic. That's why you have to you want to cook it low heat so it doesn't burn. Um, it's kind of like caramel where, you know, you're worried about burning it. Um, but unlike caramel, you're not cooking it at a high heat. So go low and slow with that. And then we bring in the quote unquote, Holy Trinity. And what is that, Ian? Uh, God, the son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, <laughs> so the Holy Trinity is peppers, onions, and celery. And, um, it's kind of similar to like a mirepoix, um, that you'd find in like French cooking. Um, but instead of carrots, the peppers and, um, the Holy Trinity, I thought was kind of this like, you know, historic, ancient Louisiana, uh, secret, but 
uh, in researching this episode a little bit, I started to learn about Paul Prudhomme, who was kind of the like celebrity chef from the Bayou right. in like the 1980s at the time when all of the big kind of like celebrity chefs like your Bourdain's and your Wolfgang Pucks were coming to prominence. And so this guy was doing kind of for Cajun cooking what they were doing for some of the other like uh, French or German type cuisines. And so um, it turns out that the Holy Trinity was actually sanctified in the 1980s by Paul Prudhomme and his kind of force of personality in the cooking world was such that, you know, it's become like no pun intended, but gospel a little <laughs> bit for cooking any kind of, you know, jambalaya or gumbo or any kind of other Cajun dish. And I saw in researching gumbo and um going onto some forums where people are like talking about you know how my grandma used to make it make it gumbo there was a lot of dispute especially about the celery and the celery aspect and um and so you know maybe the holy trinity is not so holy anymore um but you know i think like it just shows how kind of cooking traditions evolve i mean paul prudhomme Another weird fact is he also introduced the turducken to, um, and so, you know, if you ever saw John Madden on a Thanksgiving day broadcast <laughs> and digging into the monstrosity known as the turducken, maybe slightly less influential than the Holy Trinity, but, uh, Have you ever had a turducken? No, uh, no. Neither. Yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it, but, uh, I mean, I think the, Duck fat would be good with the turkey since turkey's kind of drier in general. Yeah, yeah. It might be a nice balance. Do you uh, remember Justin Wilson? Did you ever watch him? No, I don't think so. He was a Cajun chef on like PBS and okay. he, he'd cook gator and shit. It'd always be like he would, woo, I guarantee. Yeah, you remember yeah. him? Ah, uh, that, I mean, that rings a bell. He yeah. wore like, uh, I think like overalls and like an old flannel shirt type thing. Okay. Just yeah. Hot sauce and everything. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I was blown away by that growing up because uh, it went from like frugal gourmet to like Justin Wilson who just cooked gator and like, m like, you know, muskrat. Yeah. Well, and like Emerald too, I suppose, was another right. big um, kind of advocate for like the Cajun cuisine, you know, and another just like big personality. Oh, yeah. Over the top yeah. personality. Yeah. Yeah. Except for John Besh. Right. He was just a creepy dude. But yeah. Yeah. Nobody likes John Besh. Nah. Yeah. But anyway, so, so yeah, the Holy Trinity um, is, I would say, you don't want to mess with the classics too much. Right. You probably want to start with the Holy Trinity and you want to cook it down quite a bit. And you might like think of it as like the Holy quadrant. Uh, I don't know if it's a quadrant, but you want garlic in there too. Yes, like that should be, garlic. that should be part of that. Yeah. It almost kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? Um, and so I actually, I prefer, as I was telling Ian, Instead of uh, red or green or yellow bell pepper, I like to use uh, poblano pepper. I feel like it's got kind of an earthiness. It's not spicy, um, but just a little deeper uh, flavor, more interesting and layered, uh, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, so you're going to 
toss your uh, so we'll go from the start again. You've rendered down your andouille and your bacon. Um, I do like a pound, pound and a pound of bacon, like a pound and a half of andouille. Uh, pull those out. Throw in your flour. Work that roux for about half an hour. Uh, go ahead and throw in a food processor. Uh, your like cup celery, uh, an onion, and um, uh, your poblano pepper, and really whiz that up quite a bit. So it's uh, you know almost kind of incorporated as one. It's almost going to look like. Like it's just one. Uh, I love any recipe where I can just throw the veggies yes, in the blender. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then you're just going to toss that in with your roux. Um, and you're going to go ahead and, and w- with the garlic, as Ian said as well. And then you're just going to go ahead and kind of cook that, uh, you know, mix it all good on a medium low heat. You're going to cook that up. I, Add some hot sauce if you want to at this point. Add some Cajun seasoning blend. Um, And uh, add a little Worcestershire if you want to. You're going to just kind of cook that and incorporate all those for, you know, uh, 10 minutes or so. And then I like to add, um, then you add your meat back in, okay? And if you've got seafood, which I highly suggest that you have, uh, you know, shrimp or crab. Um, if you've got shrimp, add that at the end. Uh, you don't want rubber shrimp. If you've got crab, you can go ahead and add it at that point. Crab doesn't really overcook too badly. Um, and then I like to add half chicken broth and half beef broth to that. Um, and this, at this point, you're going to want to add a few bay leaves. You're going to want to add, you know, uh, a, a teaspoon or so if you've got a full pot going of uh, dried thyme. I like to add a little more thyme. Um, don't get crazy and do like a tablespoon. Um, unless it's fresh thyme, then you can add, you know, a couple teaspoons of yeah, fresh, fresh thyme. I sometimes go a little overboard with the fresh. I love fresh thyme. Yeah. It's 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 uh, muted enough compared to the dry stuff that it's not going to over. But, yeah, um, definitely want some thyme and bay leaves for yep. sure. Absolutely. Give yeah. you that real deep, rich flavor. Yeah. Really layered. Now, do you use okra in your uh, – No. Well, the other thing I saw was something called – filet powder which apparently is like ground sassafras leaves and that right. sounded very exotic yeah um really hard to find and um you know what did you say the uh the origin of the filet powder is again um well yeah i think it was tied to the choctaws and it was a thickener that they you know as Again, there's so many traditions in this, and so the Choctaws didn't know how to make a roux, and so they, I guess that was their uh, way to make it more like a stew. And then I guess a similar fun, obviously okra adds a vegetable, and but you know it also has a thickening, which some people know who don't like it because it can be slimy. And so right. the, the thickening has to be done right with the okra. You kind of have to know how to cook it. Yeah. And I do not enjoy the texture of okra only if it's fried. Um, so I don't put okra in my gumbo. Um, okra feels a little bit like that fugu fish 
where you have to know exactly what to do with it or else you're going to like really i mean you right. won't kill somebody with it but you'll turn somebody off a lot so yeah it's just not an enjoy and i like about anything it's just you know i'm guessing if you grew up with it it would be one thing like menudo like i'm not big on tripe mm-hmm. like i can eat it but i don't love it whereas i know people who that was part of their culture growing up and they just love it yeah yeah so i don't and like for me i grew up eating like a lot of sauerkraut and i think if you're not introduced to that growing up it might be difficult mm-hmm. um so yeah i think like in a certain way like we talk about acquired tastes a lot, but I think acquired textures are almost as important. And Absolutely. okra is one of those where it sounds like it's just can be texturally a nightmare. Right. And it can be. Even something as simple as mushrooms can be polarizing. You Absolutely. Know, they are polarizing. Yeah. Uh, for me, too, I don't really like raw onions because of the texture and the bitter flavor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the texture, I don't know, kind of does me off a little bit unless it's like in a salsa but just raw onions themselves i don't really like them on uh burgers or whatever but you don't do that what is the little monsters is that the movie where he makes the like onion and uh, peanut butter sandwich or something yeah it was as a kid that was always like uh Dude, my mom used to make an onion sandwich growing up. Wow. Butter. She would just put, like, rye bread, butter, and, like, a Vidalia onion. That's some real Midwest shit right there. I just couldn't even believe it. Yeah. To this day, it just makes me nauseous thinking about it. This is the inspiration for holes when they (laughs) they got the onions. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. So this filet powder, which... um, is interesting because sassafras has been found by the FDA to contain saffron, a supposed carcinogenic, mm. and so it has been banned. And this means that gumbo filet powder is illegal. Okay. Wow. Uh, the amount needed in lab rats to produce cancer is about three to five times their body weight a day for the length of their lives, though. Okay. So, so you're probably good to, yeah. Because yeah. I think it's the main flavoring and root beer and stuff. Yes. So, I, you know, I think you're probably good to keep drinking your mug or your barks or whatever. But right. I wouldn't drink barks. But yeah. <laughs> It's the one with caffeine, though. Dude, Henry Weiner. It's got bite. Henry Weiner. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Amazing. You got to do a, a craft root beer if yes. you're going to, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I, it's hard to find this. I'm guessing if you live in Louisiana, you've got connections for your filet powder to make your real gumbos. But uh, You have to know the code word to order it from yeah. the waiter. Yeah. They yep. Get that extra. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're going to add seafood, if you're going to add shrimp, though, do it at the end. And then traditionally serve it with rice. And that's what I would suggest doing as well. But yeah, I, there was a couple of variations I saw um, because, yeah, like we're talking about gumbo has sort of been codified recently, but there's so many different things. So I saw kind of the native tradition could be serving it with like grits because, mm. you know, they traditionally had cornmeal. And then also there was that this. sounds great. It does, yeah, yeah. Kind of like a shrimp and grits type thing. Yeah, 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 exa- yeah exactly. Um, and then I saw kind of Leah Chase, who's this like famous uh, New Orleans chef. She had this, I don't know how to pronounce the, but gumbo zerbs. That's the like vegetarian gumbo. Okay. And so it's got just like 
tons of collard greens and chard. And so it makes up for kind of the meatiness of the gumbo with just tons of really like hearty greens in there. And How'd she do that roux? No bacon, no andouille. Yeah, yeah. I'd have to look into Maybe that she again. she adds like Worcestershire to it. To yeah. I think it might be a traditional roux. It's not okay. like a vegetarian meal, but it's one of those where like if you don't have like sausage and chicken, like this is how you can, you know, make the gumbo. Okay. Um, another thing I thought was interesting, I saw in one of these um, Paul Prudhomme like making his traditional gumbo was that they pre-made the roux. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of had this container yeah. of like it didn't look like the most appetizing thing when they scraped, you know, spooned out the roux into the. Right. But I thought that was kind of an interesting thing, too, that, you know, you can if, you know, you don't want to make like the whole batch of gumbo at once. You can like make the roux, put it in your fridge and then like use it as you need it. This is really common at restaurants to have like. Uh, you know, a quart of roux on hand at all times. So you just can thicken things easily as you go. Um, I know when I worked at a university, we had like a gallon of roux at all times. Like we had somebody each week who made like two huge pots of roux. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So we just had it on hand. Yeah. But if you really need an energy boost, you take a spoon of the roux. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, in the end with gumbo, I think the, the biggest things to get right are the, uh, the roux, which again, take your time and make sure you're attentive and get some andouille, just get it do. And you want to do andouille and bacon. There's a depth of flavor there. And I would suggest doing andouille bacon, do the Trinity and shrimp at the very end mm-hmm. on rice. But I want to try that, um, the grits though that sounds good to me i like shrimp and grits a lot yeah yeah the bacon the smokiness yeah i mean the smokiness complementing the deep flavors of the roux yes yeah and yeah and using you know and even if you don't have bacon like use some bacon fat like save your bacon fat yeah use that to make your roux it's always good i always wonder what to do with my like jar of bacon fat yeah it's a perfect thing to do with it i think a lot of people don't realize that like back in the day like our grandparents generation like they had to keep bacon fat like that was what they cooked with that's oh it was go- liquid gold yeah, or, yeah. That, that was what yeah. they used so yeah yeah. And yeah, now I throw away a whole olive jar full of it every few I months. Know. And yeah, now I need to get more creative, make some more tortillas or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this discussion of gumbo. If you want some more information, you can visit our Instagram page at eat underscore drink underscore listen. And next week we will be back with another delicious food item. Have a good week. 